Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Do you have a favorite hotspot where your family has gathered for generations? Is it still there? Sadly, when it comes to black-owned bars and lounges, they've been disappearing from local landscapes, often without fanfare or mention. El Casimu Harris is a New Orleans-based writer, photographer, and storyteller, obsessed with preserving the memory of these establishments. El Casimu joins us to tell his story, while Torre Folks shares his mission to put black bartenders into places of prominence where they've rarely had opportunity before. And our dear friend Vance Vokrasan is back with big news. After nearly two decades, Vance and his wife Julie are thrilled to be opening Vokrasan's Creole Cafe and Deli in New Orleans' 7th Ward where the family had a business and was a vital part of the community since the late 1800s, until Hurricane Katrina washed it all away. We're celebrating that famous Vaucresson hot sausage and washing it down with fading memories of vanished black bars on this week's Louisiana Eats. Black-owned bars and lounges have a rich history in New Orleans. For generations, they've been a haven for black culture and community and a home to social aid and pleasure clubs and Mardi Gras Indians. New Orleans native El Casimu Harris has watched with dismay as many of these vital black establishments have closed their doors in recent years. Some have gone for good. Others have reopened, but now serve a very different clientele. Since 2018, El Casimu has been documenting those that remain, capturing photos and oral histories as part of a project he calls Vanishing Black Bars and Lounges. The photo exhibition had recent showings in Pittsburgh and Lafayette, Louisiana. Here's our conversation. Would you virtually take us into your favorite black bar? What's it like in there? That's a perfect question because let's just talk about time of day. You know, some bars don't open till later, but the ones that do open a little earlier, typically you're going to find older people there. It's not music playing. It's going to be the news. And then, you know, after the news, after 5, on Channel 4 probably, comes Jeopardy, <laughs> and then the 6 o'clock news. And then they start to turn on the music. 
But really, it's almost like, and there's a bar in L.A. called The Living Room. It's really like being in a living room or, or a basement bar, just real communal. Uh, if you go a little bit later, music is playing, either a jukebox or a DJ. And uh, usually you walk in, and if it's your first time, you're going to know you ain't been there before, and everyone else is going to know you ain't been there before. And they're probably going to go back to sipping their drinks. You go, order your drink, sit there a little for a little while, and probably the party's going to come to you because somebody's going to probably engage you or the bartender's going to engage you. So that's what I find the bar to be like. But then you have to think about maybe on a certain day, like Bertha's on a Saturday. It's truly a party. Uh, Bertha's is on St. Bernard Avenue. You're going to have people fry fish outside. You're going to have a DJ playing. People are truly dancing. It's not sitting around for Bertha's on a Saturday. You have documented that some of the earliest gathering places where black people met to drink and dance and play music actually goes back to the late 1800s, huh? They do. Uh, and you have to think that, like, one is Economy Hall. Uh, it had a French name that I won't attempt to pronounce, but that was around in the late 1800s, and it was a place uh, where a lot of civic organizations would frequent, uh, as well as benevolent societies, which was a precursor to social aid and pleasure clubs. So uh, at Economy Hall, it's been written that dances would last at 2 a.m. It was a place, it was a safe space. That's a word we use now. But when you couldn't go to the quarter, you couldn't go uptown, you could go to this place and be appreciated and uh, enjoy. You know, rest is very important. We work a lot, but rest is important. So and one of the really cool things that came out of Economy Hall was the uh, second line funeral, the jazz funeral. Like uh, it, it has origins in places like that. And, that's, and then we also have like the Pythian Temple that's still there, uh, different use now. You can still drink there. (laughs) It's not black-owned anymore. But uh, these places were important and remain important. When did you become aware that we were in danger of losing black bars? I think think it goes back to just a a more universal thing about New Orleans where I start to slowly notice uh, local brands leave and national brands come in. And it lost a lot of soul for me. So that's always been in me. And then I would say it's either heightened or exacerbated, depending on how you look at it, once Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005. And you had a great upheaval, uh, instantaneous upheaval of our way of life. Uh, So it was after that, uh, I had already been writing since 2001 in undergrad, Middle Tennessee State University. And in 2005, I was at the University of Mississippi Graduate School. I came back home. And I came back to a destroyed home. And that's when photography really kind of took a hold of me. And then particularly with the black bars and the black culture that we see that's really a New Orleans culture, I just noticed a lot of people documenting uh, second lines and things like that. And they, they didn't look like me. I think it's fine for anyone with a fascination and a deep appreciation of the culture to tell that story. You could go into any community. However, it's very important for people of that community 
to document their own community, and then even more importantly, to commodify off of it. So while in graduate school writing my thesis, I realized that that wasn't happening uh, as it should be within a black community, and it gave me the drive to uh, start documenting black culture, and then that led to documenting black bars. And I've been doing that very uh, explicitly since 2018. Started before that, but explicitly since 2018. Since just that time, what now exists only in memories and in your photographs? Purple Rain Bar, which was on Washington Avenue. It recently shuttered. You have uh, Sydney's. It's still there, no, no longer black-owned. Poor Boys, also on St. Bernard Avenue. St. Bernard Avenue was one of the things that it was a rapid change that I noticed, and it inspired me to start documenting these places. So uh, on St. Bernard Avenue, between Claiborne and Rampart, really close to the French Quarter, you had uh, a multitude of black bars, up to eight to ten. And it's been said that in the 70s, it would it would almost look like a bourbon street. It was so many folk on the street going from bar to bar. And I noticed around 2017, from those eight bars, that it was only one black bar left. Yeah, I, I'm a bike. I, I love to ride my bike, you know. But you start to notice a lot of bikes. Then they, they put the blue bikes out there. Just things started changing, and it was a black neighborhood, but the bars had rapidly turned white. And that's the reason why that's important is, uh, as you said earlier. The culture emanates from the black bar, be it black masking Indians, be it social-aided pleasure clubs, be it just a place to be free and to have dignity and respite. So when that is moved or displaced, where does the black culture go? I don't know. Where does it go? What becomes of the social aid and pleasure clubs? What becomes of the masking Indians? How do you keep this culture together? If you think about what happened after Katrina, you know, people were in Houston, people were in Utah, various different places, and they were still making gumbo. They were still practicing those traditions, those venerable traditions that we have. Uh, but you would see black masking Indians, they coming in, a, if they didn't live in the neighborhood anymore, you started seeing them coming with the U-Haul truck, uh, pulling out their suits for the year. So it's like the Mississippi River or water running, period. It may change. It may flow. I think it'll always be there, but how it presents itself, and I think that's the key factor about it. Uh, I think if they didn't have any black bars, they'll find a way. They would, they would, we would find a way. But... It shouldn't have to come to that, and I think that's the gift and the curse, the resiliency that one thing closes and we just keep it moving. Uh, I think we need to stop and grieve, stop and get aggressive in preserving these places. You have been on the road with your work. It fascinated me how the folks in Pittsburgh related to our plight here in New Orleans. It's certainly a universal theme. Uh, just loss in general. They still have black bars. And, um, 
you know, I talked to my friend Brent Mock, who's a Pittsburgh native and was living in Pittsburgh, but he used to live in New Orleans. And I, I said, man, you know, do you have any advice to go into these bars? Because I go into the bars cold. It's just what has happened. I, I, I make no prior arrangements. I go on a cam with a camera and I warm people up. And the entry is always a strong patron, a bartender or the owner. And I'm, I've been lucky to meet all three at various places. So in Pittsburgh, he was like, uh, yeah, bro, you don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, well, this is what I've been doing. So that's what I did. It was like New Orleans in a sense. You, If someone tells you no, you come back the next day, they're going to ask you to take that photo the next day. Mm -hmm. You meet one bar owner at uh, Black Beauty and then she tells you she owns Jay's Lounge up the street. Come by and take photos. And then, you know, a security's like, hey, 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 what you doing? You just say, hey, well, so-and-so told me to come take it. And it was just a welcoming experience. But it's always a little nervous going in. Even though everyone looks like me, you're still going into an unfamiliar place. And I feel nervous here in New Orleans, too. What was the reaction to your work in Pittsburgh? What did they have to say? The turnout was great. And they're related to it. Uh, and I, I think it goes back to that universal thing. Some people shared that their uncle still had a place in their basement that looked like that with the, the Wayne's coating and the red light, red lights and the, the uh, vinyl chairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, it touched something in someone, which as a creative, regardless of your medium, that's what you aspire to do. You want someone to feel something, to remember something, to connect. And my work definitely connected in Pittsburgh, and I can't wait to go back, actually. Kasimu, aside from documenting in photographs, along the way, I know you have learned the stories of so many of these people. Would you introduce us to some folks that maybe it's just too late for us to meet? One would be Teresa Elwa, and um, Teresa Elwa is the daughter of Louis Elwa, who started Sportsman's Corner that is still there today. I always call it the epicenter of black culture uptown, right? So right now, that place is on its third generation of ownership, Stephen Elwa. So I talked to Teresa in um, 2020 early 2020, February, and uh, I sat down with my big recorder and my microphone, and she just didn't have many words to say at all. And I was like, oh, man. So I turned the tape off, and I said, you know, you know a portrait, a portrait, a great portrait, a figurative portrait, has all the details about a person, so you get to know them. And uh, that's what I'm trying to do with this story of your bar. I want all the details, uh, the nuances, the anecdotes, because that will live on longer than you and I. And then I turned the tape recorder on, back on. She talked for an hour and a half. I had to run to teach a photography class. And the next month, she was one of the first casualties of COVID. What I learned from her, uh, one of the most important thing she said was that her father bought the bar. It was kind of burned. It had suffered a fire for $10,000. And 
and she said that uh, I'm gonna try to talk like she talks. She said that uh, she said you know sometimes I get things in the mail asking me to sell. You know she said something across the street went for two hundred and fifty, something around a block went for uh, five hundred thousand. And she said keep your little stat baby. Ain't enough money. <laughs> and she said that her father had worked too hard and made too many sacrifices to pass this business on to his uh, descendants for her to sell. Uh, and I thought that was really important. I know you spend a lot of time contemplating the situation, where we're at now, and where it looks like we could be headed. Right. What do you think the solution is? I think you do what I've done. You start to document it, and then you take it a step further. Uh, what more could we do, could I do to help? Because this is one thing, if it's in a book, it's in an exhibit, I think those are beautiful, very important things that hadn't been afforded this culture to this point. However, I don't want to look at it retrospectively. I want this culture to continue to be active. So right now it's investigating things and talking to the community and finding out what could we do to keep this thing going. Because once it's gone, you know, I don't even want to think about it. El Casimu Harris New Orleans writer, photographer, and storyteller. To view images from his ongoing series, Vanishing Black Bars and Lounges, visit elcasimuharris.com. We'll also have a link on our website at poppytooker.com. Coming up next, we meet the founder of Turning Tables. The nonprofit aims to diversify New Orleans' bar scene by providing black professionals with everything they need to succeed. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. 
To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Hello, my name is Trey Folks, and I'm the executive director of Turning Tables. In 2018, a tourism and hospitality report from the Data Center surveyed over a thousand hotel and restaurant bartenders in New Orleans. In a city that's 60% black, the survey revealed that white bartenders account for nearly three quarters of the field, while black bartenders represent less than a fifth of it. Current data from the Labor Department gives us national numbers that are even more striking. White people make up 85% of bartenders in the U.S., while black people constitute less than 5%. In light of this stark inequity, in 2019, industry veteran Torre Folks founded Turning Tables. This nonprofit aims to diversify New Orleans' bar scene by providing black and brown professionals with everything they need to succeed. Touré joined us in the studio to tell us about the program, which was developed largely by his own experience coming up in the service industry in New York. So I'm a 15-plus-year um, hospitality professional. I was a server for a long time mostly because um, I watched uh, my white counterparts be given opportunities um, and growth through um, management positions, being offered management positions, or we're about to open up this new restaurant. Why, why doesn't this person come with me? And, um, you know, generally speaking, I was always um, left in the same position um, in, this, in the first restaurant, at least, where even though I was a top server and, you know, created a, like a large regular base, I was not seen for what I brought to the table. And I think inadvertently my body was like, you know, F this, like, why don't I move on to something else? The normal way into um, the bar industry is what? The normal way? Um, there's one of two ways, you know. It's either um, that you know someone, you know, or you work in a restaurant and someone gives you an opportunity. So um, that's how I became a bartender was that I moved on to another space where – um, I was supported in management. I was allowed to work every position. I was encouraged to be myself and to find growth in uh, the restaurant space. You know, part of a restaurant group that owned six restaurants and constantly asked if I wanted to move up in the social ladder within their structure. Like, you know, if I wanted to be a manager, what I wanted to do, what were my goals, what I, like, you know, did I have ambitions outside of the restaurant industry? To write. Other than, you know, your your basic racism, where do you believe the causation of this glass ceiling could be? Where what's where is this glass ceiling coming from? Is it just racism or are there other elements at play? So I think a lot of people don't realize um, the impact of white supremacy culture how it kind of goes through all of the things that they do. So you may not be intentionally racist, um, but may have racist practices in terms of how you hire without even thinking about it. Um, there's a lot of great business owners that I've been in equity um, trainings with who, when they were thinking about opening up their space, um, logically you're going to think of your friends. And if you're 
a white person or a white male, you're going to hire white males. You're going to hire people that you um, are surrounded by. Um, your thought process does not automatically go to like, who can I give an opportunity to unless it goes to who can I give an opportunity to? So I think more people are thinking in terms of, um, their very singular universe when they hire and when they, um, create opportunities for people as opposed to, um, going back to what we've been talking about this whole time, which is like, um, do you have the time to train someone and invest in someone? How, how are people given the tools to succeed within certain systems um, and who is willing to, to like check and balance those things. Um, I think that's part of the, the problem with the glass ceiling. Trey, I love New Orleans. You know, anybody who knows me knows this is my spot. But if you were already running into the racial issues that presented themselves in New York City, did you find things better or worse here? Hmm. I would say that things were definitely a little bit worse here. Um, you think you think it's a you know it's a mostly black and brown city um, in terms of management opportunities, in terms of opportunities of who gets behind the bar. Um, I think that uh, maybe it's like five percent black owned business owners of like restaurants in the city, and then um, you look at who's behind the bar. Um, you know, obviously, it being a mostly black-owned city, you're going to see black bartenders. But who do you see when you go into certain establishments? I couldn't imagine that you were going to think things were better once you got here. Because I'm from here, and I know how it is. <laughs> but maybe you just saw an opportunity for change? Without a doubt. I mean, um, New Orleans has a way of letting you know if it wants you to be here, I would say. Um, there was definitely some challenges along the way. Um, but what I saw through um, volunteering and the, the community here, the community here is like no other. Um, I will I will say that. And so um, embracing my community, becoming a part of the community gave me a little bit more intentionality and um, drive to want to do what I started to do, which was um, I started like building partnerships and doing like um, a little bit of research into, you know, how could I change um what I saw within the hospitality systems here. Um, and it was informed a lot by my own experience. Even though, you know, New York and New Orleans, what we're talking about, this is a problem nationally. I will say that um, New Orleans, you know, it's mostly a hospitality culture. So the events, um, bars, restaurants, uh, the framework for this was almost perfect to start um, what Turning Tables has um, intends to do, which is to change the nature of hospitality and spaces by creating more opportunities for black and brown community. And uh, we were assisted by um, Tales of the Cocktail to get it off the ground. And then once we hit the ground running, um, there was a thirst for it. People were like, you know, this eye-opening moment. Like, why, why haven't we <laughs> thought haven't of doing this before? this before? Why haven't we thought of this before? So Tales of the Cocktail gave you a platform initially prior to uh, 2019? Um, they gave us the initial funding. So ah. after we got the initial funding, I had to learn essentially from going from being a bartender to running an organization. Um, and what makes New Orleans so special is that I think it was a lot easier here to um, be embraced by the cocktail community and the bar community because um, definitely could not do this alone. And what I found was a super supportive community that like wanted this change themselves. 
So how many do you take at a time? So the first two years, um, the first year was like a pilot year. So it was like about seven students. Um, the second year, because of COVID, I think it was a little bit harder to recruit, but it was about the same amount. And then this year, which I really consider to be like our second year in theory, um, our numbers have doubled. So we took on 12 students. Um, and so our goal is to go twice a year down the line. So walk me through the program. So it's 12 weeks. Um, and so the, the, the length of the program is with the intention of that they're going into the industry together. So, um, you know, they have the system of support and it starts from the beginning. Initially, we try to give them a base in um, cocktail history, but also um, entering the industry in like a, a way that um, is um, they have industry lifestyle maintenance. So um, maintaining their own mental health and having healthy practices going into the industry as well is as important as any kind of cocktail they're going to make. And what does it cost them? It's absolutely free. <laughs> That's always a magic word. What's the future of turning tables? What are you hoping is going to happen next? I think in the future, I've mentioned scale. So, like, obviously, you know, um, hospitality is something that I love. It's given me a lot of different opportunities. And so if we can um, bring those opportunities to people that are underrepresented and um, have never been given those resources, um, obviously, not just here, I would love to, like, bring our model into other places. What I'm seeing is, you know, um, more and more chefs are reaching out to us. More and more people are reaching out to us. Um, I think our impact is being realized. You know, Chris Hanna, who is local legend in the cocktail world here, um, came to graduation. He was the mentor of one of the students in our program. Um, and I would have never in a million years thought that when I started this program that I would be able to get a Chris Hanna or um, Neil Bodenheimer. Yeah, um, yeah, or like get someone into one of those. You know, I remember approaching Neil for Cure um, early doors, and now to have someone working in one of his spaces, you know, all of those things may lead me to believe that like the sky's the limit in terms of our impact. Well, Teray, I am so grateful that you are putting this new pair of spectacles on everybody's nose and making them look a little closer because. <laughs> That looks long overdue. So thank you so much for your amazing work. And please keep us posted on your progress and what comes next. Oh, for sure. 100%. Thank you again for having me. Tory Folks, founder and executive director of the New Orleans nonprofit Turning Tables. did Vokrasan Sausage become such a vital part of New Orleans' taste profile? We'll explore their heritage when we come right back. Mm-hmm. 
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How did Vaucresson sausage become such a vital part of New Orleans' taste profile? The Vaucresson's family history is a delightful illustration of the melting pot that is Creole culture. Levinsky Vaucresson Vance Vaucresson's great-grandfather emigrated to New Orleans from the Alsace-Lorraine region of France in the late 1800s. Levinsky was a white man of Jewish heritage, but his wife, Odile Galliard, was a Creole woman of color. How she happened to be in France, the family has never been able to explain. They settled in New Orleans' 7th Ward, where Vance Vaucresson's grandfather, Robert Levinsky Vaucresson, became a butcher, renowned for his fresh Creole charisse. That spicy charisse was the only sausage Leah Chase would ever put in her gumbo, a tradition that continues at Dookie Chase Restaurant today. It was Vance's father, Sonny Vaucresson, who opened the first black-owned business on Bourbon Street since Reconstruction, the original Vaucresson's Creole Cafe, back in 1966. The gregarious Sonny counted Larry Borenstein and George Ween as friends, and consequently, much of the planning for the original New Orleans Jazz Fest happened right there at Vaucresson's Creole Cafe. When it was determined at the last minute that food was needed at the fest, Vaucresson Sausage made history with their now-famous Hot Sausage Poor Boys. Today, Vaucresson Sausage remains the only original Jazz Fest vendor still participating every year. But finally, now the Vaucresson family has resurrected the Creole Cafe and has opened their doors back on St. Bernard Avenue, where it all began. Let's go there now. (laughs) 
On a recent sunny day in New Orleans, the Louisiana Eats crew took a field trip to the city's seventh ward to pay a visit to a longtime friend of the show. When we parked the car at St. Bernard Avenue and North Roman Street, I could hardly contain my excitement. Let's do this thing. Oh, God, this is so exciting. I guess, yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, I've been waiting to make this since the day we made the first radio show. Oh, really? I mean, it's unbelievable. On the corner was our destination, a newly renovated building with gold clapboard siding and red trim windows. Standing in the doorway of the first floor storefront, was Vance Vaucresson of Vaucresson Sausage Company. He was beaming. Oh, there's that man. There he was popping. Hanging directly above the door was a sign that marks the realization of a dream, one that Vance has been working on for nearly two decades. It read, Vaucresson Creole Cafe and Deli. Really, I have goosebumps. <laughs> It's difficult to overstate how important it is to Vance and the Vokrasan family business to be in operation again at their location at 1802 St. Bernard Avenue. To get a sense of what it means, here's a crash course to get up to speed on the family saga, starting in 1899. That year, Vance's grandfather, Robert Levinsky Vokrasan, planted the family's roots in the Seventh Ward, working as a butcher just a few blocks away from 1802 St. Bernard Avenue. In 1970, Vance's father, Sonny Vokrasan, purchased that building, converting it into a sausage factory. When Sonny died suddenly of a heart attack in 1998, Vance stepped into his father's shoes. He was able to grow the family business until Hurricane Katrina's floodwaters wiped out the factory and Vance's main source of income. When Jazz Fest resumed in 2007, he partnered with a local competitor to use their facility to produce Vokrasan sausage for festival crowds. Without a home for 17 years, Vance relied on festivals to keep the company's name and reputation alive. It is. So here we are. Here we are. So this initially. Back at Vokrasan Creole Cafe in Delhi, Vance and his wife, Julie, showed me around the former sausage factory, which they converted into a restaurant, meat market, and company headquarters. Over the cafe, they created two affordable housing units, changing the building's economic outlook dramatically. Thrilled by what I saw, I asked Vance and Julie to sit down with me so we could discuss how they got here and what's next for the Vokrasan brand? Tell me about all of the elements that you had to and were able to eventually pull together to make this happen. 
Well, to give it in historical context, we tried, I tried twice before and failed in different ways. Luckily ran across a, a family friend, Julius Kimbrough. He was the executive director of Crescent City Community Land Trust. And I told him what happened and what I was trying to do. And he said, you know, um, there's not really any room for your type of developments to, to really have access to funds that really work for your type of development. So he said, you know, well, what are your needs? And I said, well, we're going to need some money to get started. Um, but I think we can probably get some things going as we go. So he helped me with some pre-development monies. We got some grants. And then we went and we went to the city because part of Crescent City Community Land Trust model is to bring more affordable housing to the community. So they said, you know, by having some of these commercial properties that you can carve out affordable housing within them, you can help these developers to bring much needed monies to their project because you will provide affordable housing. So we were able to build a financing model where we were able to, to get funds from the Office of Community Development from the state of Louisiana because their mission was to uh, bring back disaster-related uh, entities. So we fit that mission. So what's it going to be like when the doors do open? It's going to be fast casual. Um, you can dine in. We expect to have a lot of pick up and take out. Um, we're going to do some traditional New Orleans plate lunches. We're going to have uh, red beans and rice on Monday. We'll have uh, spaghetti on Wednesday. Some typical things like that. Um, we're going to use a lot of our proteins, of course, but not limited to that. We'll do po'boys like we do at the festivals, in addition to shrimp po'boys, oyster po'boys, traditional New Orleans fare. I imagine there'll be gumbo. We're going to have gumbo. Have gumbo. And um, what kind of gumbo will that be? Uh, it's going to be a, a chicken and sausage gumbo. Um, our partner in this business entity, which we're so happy to have, is uh, Edgar Dookie Chase IV. When I solicited him, he was... He said it made sense. Our, our families go back so long, and he would, was very happy to try to help me to segue into this restaurant business. How did that idea come to you, to um, reach out to Duck? Well, you know, when we were talking about a relevant retail concept, as when you're looking at a multi-generational business, um, you know, having had where uh, we had a restaurant in the quarter in the 60s, we uh, had a meat market in the neighborhood, a sausage company, and then we're up to this date, we're still doing mobile concessions. Uh, we, we wanted to make a relevant retail concept, uh, and that's why we wanted to marry the two. We wanted to have a deli where we can still do some small processing, offer some of the things that we had in the meat market, make some things on site so people can pick up fresh product. But we also wanted to go back and make some po'boys and some specialty burgers and utilize our proteins that we made here as a, a way to sell product as well. And that's when I approached Dookie about that. And he said, you know, it makes sense. You could have a, a cafe deli, uh, help you with the cafe side and the organization and the implementation. Um, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I'm not going to make my own gumbo because Dookie's makes a great gumbo with our hot sausage. So I'm going to just use that gumbo. And, um, and then uh, he'll also help us to marry some of our traditions in making some of uh, uh, some of those classic Creole dishes with our proteins so that we can uh, provide a, a space that 
is a throwback to what this community has known, a community space where you can come in, you can probably see some of your people, meet some new ones, um, also be able to come in and immerse yourself in some of the history that we have on, in, in the space, uh, on the walls. Uh, we'll train our staff to engage uh, with uh, information on culture, history, community, uh, to give understanding. We also have some programming. I'm going to do some sausage making classes and some other uh, classes to show people how to make some of these products because we don't want to die with the information. We want to pass it on. So we want to just be a, uh, an outlet to provide a culture, community, and cuisine to, uh, to our visitors as well as uh, to some of the locals that they don't know. We find that just from talking to people. They just don't know. So we want to give them an outlet for uh, authentic understanding and holistic understanding. One time we did a segment over at Fox 8 and we made stuffed bell peppers. And one of the ladies that worked there said that it smelled like her grandmother's house at Thanksgiving. That's what we want. We want you to come in and feel like you're at your grandmother's house and you're going to get this traditional food that you get in the homes of some of the best cooks throughout the city. That's what we want. We want that vibe. Oh, that's so exciting. I'm so excited. What else? We are in the process right now of doing a mustard line. You are? What goes better with, with sausage than mustard? So we are working on a mustard line that'll be perfectly paired with our sausage as well as a standalone product. How about the next generation? Can you give us a word or two? Well, it's interesting <laughs> that you would ask that because this festival season, I have to say that our children really stepped up. They work tirelessly. At one time, Vance was worried about the business dying with him, that he would be the third generation, that's it. I think we're doing a lot of innovative things right now, and we're doing, they've got a renewed interest in it. They're excited about it. They're excited about the mustards. They're excited about um, us opening this cafe in Delhi. And they love doing the social media for us. I don't know if you've seen oh, any of our- I was just our... gonna say, you better put those kids on the social media, because that's, that's how, where mine comes from. Exactly, my daughter said I have to do a TikTok at the booth for, um, so I, I did it, I wasn't good, but I did it, you know. Thank you all so much for giving me this sneak preview of the Vaucresson Creole Cafe in Delhi. Thanks for having me here. Well, we're thankful, but I'd love to leave you with a copy of our jingle, if you wouldn't mind. Please. Thank you. We got that good sausage. Go get them buns. We'll put them together and have some fun. I'll bring that mayonnaise, that Creole mustard, too. Don't forget my cheese. We'll eat that good sausage. Go get that Creole sausage. We'll have some great sausage from Vaucresson's to you. That was Vance Vaucresson, jazz vocalist and third generation of Vaucresson Sausage Company. Louisiana Eats joined him and his wife Julie at Vaucresson Creole Cafe in Delhi 
now open in New Orleans' 7th Ward. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Reitz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 